The Golden Mike Podcast is presented by SeaDeck Marine Products. SeaDeck features non-absorbent closed-cell PE EVA blended foam that delivers the perfect combination of comfort, safety, and style. For more information, check out www.seadeck.com. That's S-E-A-D-E-K.com. Your boat deserves SeaDeck. And now, it's showtime. Recognized as the official voice of Toad Water Sports for over a decade. His vocal tones have narrated the industry's biggest and most prestigious events in the world. With over 25 years of on-water experience, captivating charisma, and a command of his audience. Presented by Sea Deck Marine Products, it's the Golden Mike Podcast. With the noise of the North himself, Dano the Mano. Thanks for tuning in to episode 99 of the Golden Light Podcast. I'm Dan of the Mano recording this portion of the podcast up north at my parents' house, old bedroom studio in Northbrook, Illinois. It's raining outside, but now it's time for some audio sunshine. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Roswell Marine. Since 1998, Roswell Marine has been driven by passion for boating and water sports, born out of the garage of Robert Oswell, and now produced on the space coast of Florida. Roswell is always pushing boundaries within the industry to make beautiful and functional products that make boating and water sports a little more enjoyable. With multiple awards and innovation, industry first, and the business motto of quality without compromise, Roswell Marine's proven performance has helped define the wake industry for now over two decades. So whether you're depending upon a Universal Tower or Neptunes, a.k.a. the king of tower speakers, Roswell products are built to perform reliably from the day you unbox them. Go to roswellmarine.com, find out more info today. Just this last weekend, I was actually honored to be a part of the Roswell 20th anniversary. I emceed a big industry party over at the factory in Rockledge, Florida. All the industry heads were there. Folks from Nautique, folks from Malibu, folks from PCM, folks from SeaDeck, manufacturers, dealers, athletes, legends. It was a blast. So congrats again to Robert and his entire crew over at Roswell Here's the 20 years and 20 more, my friends. Really special episode today, everyone. Episode 99. I've been thinking a lot about it lately, and it blows my mind that I've been able to create, well, over, well over 100 hours of Toad Water Sports listening media. A lot of hard work, a lot of speed bumps along the way, but we're here. And you know what else? Episode 100, it's already in the works. It's a super special episode, and I hope you guys are all as excited and eager with anticipation as I am to release it to listen to that episode. Today, though, again, episode 99, so let's talk about that. Well, back in early March, I was honored to receive an award from the WSIA, Water Sports Industry Association. It was the Larry Medoc Award. Former recipients of this award are Greg Hodgins of Wake the World, Blake Hess, and Zane Schwank, two mentors of mine. I'm not going to talk about the award, 
But what I do want to talk about is Larry Medoc. Larry Medoc, who is my guest on today's episode. You know, when most people these days hear the name Medoc, they associate it with one of our industry's all-time great photographers, Joey Medoc. Well, before Joe, there was Lair, Big Lair, as many of us know him by, or, well, just Larry Medoc. Larry's been active within the toad water sports industry for five decades, and as you'll hear us discuss in the episode, he's had his hands in some of the most important exposure-gaining and iconic moments in events in the water sports industry. He helped facilitate the water ski scene in Freaky Friday, a massively seen mainstream movie back in the 70s. This led to his start at Nautique Boats all the way back in 1977, where he'd go on to run the masters of water ski and wakeboard for many years and change the face of the sport and the towed boat industry in general with the introduction of the flight control tower. Larry now is retired but continues to make a difference as he travels vigorously, fighting for waterway rights and protection with the WSIA, an organization he helped found 30 years ago. We talk all about that, a lot of interesting stuff on this one, a lot of history, so hopefully you guys all enjoy it. It means a lot to me as a Larry Medoc Award winner myself. So since the last episode of the podcast, I have been busy. I spent a week up in Chicago and Wisconsin, then I flew back down to Florida. While I was up north, I checked out an Aquanaut ski show, had a couple of meetings as myself and my girlfriend uh, were organizing a big event up here called Corn Fest in Twin Lakes, Wisconsin. That's happening August 17th. It's going to be four water sports disciplines, a corn eating contest, all-you-can-eat corn, live music, Hopefully you guys can make it out. It's going to be a really, really cool event there. Twin Lakes, Wisconsin at Lance Park. You know, I recommend maybe playing a little hooky from work August 17th. Yeah, it's a Friday, but come on out. It's going to be a great time. I mentioned at the top I hosted and emceed the Roswell 20th anniversary party. Uh, That was a good time as well. We rocked out real late over there at Roswell. And right now I'm getting ready to head out to Missouri for stop number two of the Malibu Boats Rider Experience. Aside from that, we're full steam ahead. A lot of events coming up, and episode number 100 is coming out July 4th. That's right, super excited about it. 100 episodes, folks, and I could not do it without the support of all of the Rad Golden Mike podcast sponsors. So I want to say thank you to SeaDeck Marine Products, Boulder Boats, the WSIA, Roswell Marine, Woodrow Sustainable Optics, Performance Ski and Surf, GoPuck, Footin.com, Hyperlite, Conley, Ledwake, Ronix, O'Brien, and Slingshot. Now, if any of you are looking to support, here's a few ways that you can do just that. Number one, you could purchase a Golden Mike Podcast t-shirt or dad hat from me, or it's as easy as telling a friend. Tell a friend about the podcast. Have them subscribe on iTunes. If you personally are not already subscribed on iTunes, please do so. Then go and write and review the show. Give me five stars. Write something cool. I will read that on the episode after you write it and it posts. So that's pretty cool. Remember, you guys can listen to the podcast tons of different ways. 
iTunes, Apple Podcasts, the podcast app on iPhones, most downloadable podcast apps on Android devices, SoundCloud, and at noiseofthenorth.com. You guys, let me know if you find another place where the podcast is hosted. I've heard people all around the world saying they found it on some crazy websites. It's pretty cool. Reviews. When I get them, I read them. I got one on June 8th from Brookwood, DJ12. The title, Super Sick Podcast, and it reads, If it wasn't for Dano, I would not know as much about water sports, period. So this podcast is a must to stay in the knowings for wakeboarding and water sports. Thank you, Brookwood. Now you send me an email Golden Mike at noiseofthenorth.com. That's the address. Shoot me that email, and then I will ship you an official Golden Mike podcast hat. You all can also feel free to email me, just like Natalie Grand Slam Graham did, to tell me that she enjoyed the Ron Scarpa episode and loved the Feet on Fire event cast. That was a fun one for me. I recommend you guys go back, you listen to them all. Shoot me an email. Let me know what you think. Golden Mike at noiseofthenorth.com. You can also write me that review on iTunes. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get to this. And by that, I mean episode 99. Here's Larry Medock on the Golden Mike podcast, baby. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought it would be appropriate to have you on, um, as you know, and I'm guessing many of the listeners of the podcast know, uh, back over the winter. I won a pretty awesome award with high honor and an award that has your name attached to it, the Larry Medock Award at the Water Sports Industry Association Leadership Awards and your summit. Um, And so I thought it would be appropriate to have you on kind of talk about, because some people might be like, who the heck is is Larry Medock? Because although you've done a lot in the industry, a lot for the industry, a guy who's been a part of the industry for a long time, You've always kind of been sort of like, would you say behind the scenes with, with oh, what you Oh, I do? think very much behind the scenes. That, um, yeah, it's it's been a great career, Dan. I've had, um, I've, I've been blessed in so many ways. Um, like you said, I, I think now in my later years, I'm more known as Joey's dad than I am anything else, which to me is an honor. Um, but yeah, I've been in the industry almost 50 years, uh, started out in San Diego working for a water ski company. What was, what was ironic about that water ski company was called cut and jump. If anybody out there remembers one of the old, old schools, taper flex and cut and jump. Yeah, I think the, my first pair of skis were a, were a pair of cut and jumps. They could have been because Cypress gardens, cut and jump and taper flex pretty much were the names in the day. And I went to work for them as a product manager for Cut and Jump. The funny thing about it was, is I really sucked as, as a water skier. But I knew a lot about the sport, and I enjoyed the sport. I'd started the San Diego Water Ski Association. And um, I worked for them for a while, and then uh, left them uh, to go to work, believe it or not, for Walt Disney. I went to work for Walt Disney Productions. Uh, Walt Disney had come to San Diego, talked to the city. They wanted to film a movie in San Diego, and they asked the city if there was anybody in town that could assist them uh, that, uh, in terms of 
getting these water skiing sequences done and getting them produced without killing anybody. What was so what, what was the what was the idea behind that? Was that because what Cypress Gardens had done and made so popular back in the day, or was Disney just or was this something that Disney No, was this was just into? a movie that Disney was doing. It was it was the original Freaky Friday, and the original Freaky Friday had Jodie Foster in it. She was only thirteen years old. It was right after Taxi Driver, so she was already a big star. And they were going to make a movie that happened to have a the the part of the storyline of this movie is that she trades places with her mom, and uh, who's played by Barbara Harris, and Barbara Harris then becomes this this water skier that was the star of the show. Well, of course, she didn't know how to water ski. They all lied to the producers that they all the the principals and all the extras they could all water ski. So I had convinced Disney they could not produce this movie without my assistance. And uh, I, I've turned out to be a fairly decent salesman and convinced uh, Disney to hire me. And so Did, I be- were you actually like talking to Walt or no, he, uh, he had just pa- well, he had been passed for six years. So um, but I, I immediately drove up to Burnbank, had a, a chat with the production manager. Uh, they hired me. And as they say, the rest is history. And they showed me all the storyboards of all this water skiing sequences. And they said, how do we do these scenes without killing anybody? And, uh, and they needed, and of course, stunt doubles didn't, they didn't have any stunt doubles to do the stuff they wanted to do. So they, these were all water skiing friends of mine out of San Diego that, that did all these, all these stunts and they call them in the industry gags. And so it turned out to be a great run. And then I happened to call Nautique and said, Hey, I need five boats for this movie. They didn't know me. I didn't know them, but I had a Nautique. I told you I was a pretty good salesman. I convinced uh, uh, Cut and Jump they had to buy me a ski nautique so I could ski with it, and uh, which all the good water skiers that really frosted their chaps. That right. I, I ended up with a brand new nautique and I couldn't ski worth squat. But um, we we did the movie. They they gave us five nautiques. Um, it was just amazing. I called up Correct Craft, talked to Mr. Malone, and said. Will you give me five boats to use in this movie? And he said yes. Didn't even hesitate. Got on an airplane, flew out there. We met, shook hands, and uh, um, it was shortly after that that Craft contacted me and said, "Hey, you've given us more exposure in that one movie than we do with our agency. Why don't you come back here and work for us?" And that was in 1977. What was the scene like back in the days when you got started? Oh boy, Danny. The I think this the simplest way to state it is it, it was just a much simpler time as life was back in the in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. Um, I started to work for Cut and Jump in um, 71, I'm going to say, 70 maybe early 72. So there were only two boat manufacturers uh, that were into organized water skiing, uh, Correctcraft making the Nautique and Mastercraft. So you didn't have a huge selection of boats to go after if this happened to be what you wanted to do. Wakeboarding didn't exist. Wake skating didn't exist. Uh, um, Danny Churchill was around then with a with a, a hydroslide, um, but the big brands were. Uh, 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 Western Wood, Denny Kidder was involved with that before he came. Kidder was Western Wood. Um, um, Mike Siderhoud was a big, huge name in, in water skiing at the time. Chris and Bob LaPointe were around. They were at the right at the peak of there, really, really coming into their own. Um, the entire West Coast was had lots of, of slalom tournaments and three of what we just referred to as three event tournaments. 
and I'd go to every one of them. Um, again, towing the boat to, because we had it all, you know, decked out and cut and jump graphics. And of course, we'd get laughed at because the ski of choice back then was uh, an EP. Um, um, EP uh, was probably the ultimate, as it was Saucier, David Saucier. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of uh, Roger Teeter was, a, was with EP at the time. Um, O'Brien, of course, was around. Uh, Herb O'Brien was around. I forgot I had, uh, um, I, I actually jumped on some of Herb's infamous red jump skis that were used to transport the little kerfuffle he got involved in with the, uh, with the DEA, uh, importing a, a product into the United States uh, without permission. And uh, obviously was teased that I ever cut him up to see if I had any prizes inside mine, which I didn't. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I'd say Herb O'Brien, Roger Teeter, uh, Denny Kidder. Um, those were the brands that were really big. You didn't hear much about the East Coast in terms of Cypress Gardens and and Ricky McCormick in, in that genre. Was it just because it was like a West just Coast a, yeah. thing? And... Well, you remember, we didn't have cell phones. We but didn't... I do, but I, I, I be, I've been seeing a lot of uh, media like on, so on Facebook and whatnot of like old videos from like the 60s and 70s, maybe even the 50s of water ski tournaments uh, that were that were, seemed to be like mainstream stuff that was on oh, like they ABC. Were. And... They were. The, they absolutely were. Uh, 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 there were several folks that, uh, ABC Wide World did a did a few, um, but again, ESPN wasn't around. Uh, the outward the outdoor network wasn't around. You know, Turner wasn't around. So um, you didn't have any choice except the big boys if you get get, get them involved. Uh, Mike Sider Mike dad his name was Yop Yop Siderhout, and he was a huge promoter. And there was a ski site in San Francisco, and actually in Berkeley. And the Berkeley Aquatic Park was the was ground zero for three event water skiing. They had an incredible course, protected in brackish water, and if you wanted to see the really just talented water skiers, you would go to anything that was happening in Berkeley. We would host a tournament. We meaning San Diego would host a tournament once a year. It was it was really nothing. The um, then a new site came along called Canyon Lake, where a lot of the athletes were coming out of Canyon Lake because it was a, a private community built on water for, for um, around water. And of course, it's still a part of the industry now. Yeah, and... Canyon Lake is still part of that of that group. Um, so you uh, Long Beach, Long Beach Marine Stadium had a, a slalom event there where a lot of the drag skiing and you know some of the ski racing stuff was happening. But I would have to say that ground zero for three event was Berkeley. Berkeley Aquatic Park was where you would go to see all the big names like how, Cider Howden. How crazy is it, though, that now it seems like, I mean, I know there's still stuff going on, going on out in California, but it really seems like Florida is the hot spot for toad water sports now. No did, question about it. How did that change and how did that happen? Well, uh, I, I omitted and I shouldn't have, is that another little thing was happening as I was getting started was the private water ski lakes. There's an area outside of Barstow, California, just east of Barstow on the way to Vegas called Newberry Springs. And this is where Dr. Jack Horton built the very first private water ski lake. And what they found out was there was literally an ocean under the desert. 
And back in those days, they didn't charge for the water. All they charged was for the electricity to pump the water to the surface. Well, you can imagine during the summer with temperatures in the 120s, 130s, the evaporation rate was just insane. So, but they didn't charge for water. And so they decided there would, might be an ocean of water underneath the high desert. So as soon as Horton developed that, and, he, and he's the guy that developed the proper slope angle, you know, this 11 to one grade so that there would be no backwash, what the optimum depth of the water should be. And um, so then we saw everything begin to migrate from the known public sites went to the private sites. And in my opinion, that began the downfall of three-event water skiing because you never, you no longer got to see Mike Siderhout or Chris LaPointe, uh, you know, Jimmy Red, any of these guys that were, that were the superstars, they're now all on private bodies of water where the water conditions are controlled. So it, once that, that science, and now there's probably over 15 lakes out there in the high desert, once that happened, then everybody started to copy those, and you then begin to see those, you know, pop up. In the meantime, Cypress Gardens was just this, this unique anomaly that just stood here in, in Florida and continued just to do their thing. And as you said, Dan, what's happened is, is that then Florida, everybody started to migrate to Florida because you could ski year-round. You could ski year-round. Um, and, you know, could find bodies of water that nobody, because a lake in Florida, you know, I, I always make comments that the Orlando Boat Show is one of the worst boat shows in the world to ever attend because nobody ever goes to it. It's because to have a boat in California is a big deal. To have a boat in Florida is nothing. It's like armpits. Everybody's got them. So it's a non-ceremonial activity to go out and buy a boat in Florida where you buy a boat in England or in Canada or in California, that's a big deal. That's a special thing. That's a very special day. You'd mentioned that you got in with um, Correct Craft, the Nautique brand, around 1977 after um, working with Disney and getting getting um, uh, five of their Nautique boats into, uh, into Freaky Friday. Um, talk a little bit about getting on board with Nautique um, what the brand was like back in the er- back in your early days, because when you got with Nautique, they'd already been around for something like fifty years. Well, yeah, Nautique, uh, you know, Mastercraft was the new kid on the block, and shortly after I'd come to work for Correct Craft, then we saw American Skier was the next new brand that had that had come. A guy by the name of Ken Alkine down Miami Way it was producing this boat. Um, Ski Nautique ruled the roost. Uh, Ski Nautique was the boat. Uh, we worked in a relatively small factory compared to the Craft factory of today. Uh, maximum production for us when I was there was uh, 10 boats a day. Sometimes we'd push it to 10 and a half, but usually 10 was the max. So if that was the max, you know, we were running probably eight to nine boats a day was, was cranking. Of that, the mix would probably be six of those would be ski nautiques, and there might be a, you know, a Martinique or a Southwind or a Fish Nautique or some of the other models that we had. But ski nautique was correct craft. It was everything they did was ski nautique. Um, production was was pretty simple compared to today. Uh, boats were smaller. Remember, Ski Nautique is only 17 feet, 9 inches long. We called it an 18-footer, but it was only 17, 9. 
Um, and the original ski nautiques didn't have boarding platforms. I remember the first time I met Mr. Maloon, he came out to San Diego before, this is before we did Freaky, and he came to me one day and he said, Larry, we happened to be, I was skiing on the course that day, and he came down and, and he said, Larry, we're thinking about putting boarding platforms, or in those days we called them swim platforms, on the back of a ski nautique. Do you think that's something good? i show you how brilliant I am. I said, no. If you're not man enough to get into a ski nautique from the water, then you shouldn't have one. That's how, that's how, how passionate I was about a the product. A lot of young minds. Yes. I, I used to and, have some thoughts like, yeah, I used to have so, thoughts like that too. <laughs> so they obviously went to a boarding platform. Um, the boats were pretty simple. And they, in those days, they, they, occup- they mirrored what uh, Henry Ford said. You want to, you, I'll make you any car you want as long as it's black. Well, back in those days, you had a white hull and you had about four different colors. That's all you get to choose from. Because, again, back in those days, in terms of keeping track and you know, the co- just trying to keep production simple, it was a lot simple if you told the customer, you got four choices to choose from, pick one. Whereas if you had 40, you know, then that puts a burden on the guy to pick, well, I don't know what I want. So it was just a much, much simpler time back then. Um, but it was, it was fun. There was a old guard of guys that were producing the boats, uh, all of us youngsters. I, I was 32 years old when I came to work for Correct Craft. And um, it, you know, I was just a kid. I and mean, what was your role when you first came in? Believe it or not, I was hired as assistant to the president. Um, I was hired by Walter O. Maloon, his, who's long since passed. And my original title was assistant to the president. And you might it was Walter one of the founders? Walter, there were three brothers from the founder. The the founder of the company was Ralph C. Maloon. Um, I'm sorry, Walter uh, C. Maloon, and um, and his wife. And they had three sons. They had Walter O. They had Ralph C. And they had Harold. And Walter, the man that I was hired by. Uh, I supposedly worked for him. Uh, when I got there, I said, oh, what does the vice president to the, or assistant to the president do? And he said, I don't have the slightest idea, but we'll figure something out. And that's basically, when I first got there, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just knew this is where I wanted to be. And because uh, my passion, again, was three-event water skiing, and Nautique was the king at the time of three-event water skiing. So... Um, uh, Walter O had a son, Walter N, which everybody came to know as Walt, and he became the president and he became my eventual boss. So eventually I went to work for, for Walter N Maloon and um, the three brothers, uh, one is still alive today. That's Ralph Maloon, Ralph C. Maloon, and he is He's 100 gotta, years old. Say he's got to be close to 100 He's, he's 100 years old. I got the privilege to go to his birthday party uh, this last uh, spring. And um, he's uh, very frail, but he's still hanging in there. Uh, W.O. Maloon and Harold passed many, many years ago. So um, uh, Walt, my, the boss, the man I worked for, uh, and eventually became vice president of sales and marketing. So... He, You've worked with the masters. You also, and I don't really know all all of the information behind this, but growing up, uh, once a lot of my crew or once my best friend Eric Ruck moved down to Florida, became close with your son Joey. Um, I don't really know the full story, but from what I understand is you're the guy credited with the flight control tower. Can you kind of talk a little bit about <laughs> that? 
Um, yeah, I, I always get a kick out of telling this, this story because it, it just shows you how human we all can be and how wrong we can all be, even though we think we're right. Um, there was a young man that worked at CorrectCraft, and um, at the time, we had come up with what was called an extended tow pylon. And this pylon was about six feet tall. And being, you know, we didn't have the engineering that there's available today. You know, boating still to this day is pretty basic stuff. It's not like the automo automobile industry that has wind tunnels and all this fancy, fancy computer-supported design elements. The boats are still fairly seat of the pants. So we put this extended pylon in the boat, not realizing what we were actually doing to the boat in terms of when you started to load that thing, you put a pylon six feet up, and as you said, Danny, you like to pull out to the side of a boat and yank on it. Well, you get a pylon in the center of the boat, you're starting to pull the boat over. And, and uh, we quickly figured that out, that how high is too high on, a, on an extended pylon. But the wakeboarding community was saying, Craft, you gotta give us more height, because if you get into the physics of wakeboarding, you know, once the rope is parallel with the water at its attachment point, anything above that, gravity's and the boat's just trying to pull you back down. So the higher you can make that attachment point, the less load there is on the athlete because he's in kind of in free zone. Once he gets above that, the boat's working against him. So we thought, okay, we've got to figure out how to get this tow attachment point higher. Well, this young man who worked in our engineering department came to me with this design of this tower. And his very first concept was just to have it be a board rack. And then he says, no, let's put a pylon up there, attachment point, and we could really, this might be really special. So he, I got the phone call, again, remember, no cell phones. I get the phone call to go over there and take a look at the prototype. And I went over there and looked at that thing, and I said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And uh, they said, well, we think this will work. And so they finished one up, made it nice and pretty, and put it on a boat and brought it to my boss. And uh, he says, they've tested it, and everybody says, this, is, this will work. And uh, we didn't have a name for it. And uh, so they went out, and, and my boss said, well, Larry, what do you think? Is it, you know, do you think we can sell these things? And I said, well, why don't we put one on the Masters, and we'll see what those guys think of it. And I said, it's no big deal, because I don't think we'll sell five of them. I'll never forget it to this day that we'll sell five of them. And, of course, we took it to the Masters. It was a huge success. And, you know, let's just fast forward saying that, Nowadays, if you don't have a tower on a boat, it's sailproof. You can't sell it for wakeboarding. What we then, once we began to realize, and I don't even think we really realized what we had at the time, but once we thought we knew or understood what, what a wakeboard tower was all about, um, Walt, again, my boss, went after the engineering and said, we need to get a patent on this. Well, we le quickly learned the difference between a design patent and a utility patent. Five years later, in hundreds of thousands of dollars spent, we finally got a utility patent. And the layman's explanation of a utility patent means the concept of what we're presenting is patented, not the specific design of what we built. Design patents are easy to break. Utility patents are very difficult to break. And that utility patent, I believe, 
is either about to expire or may have expired. They run uh, 17, 20 years. Can you uh, explain what that means? Well, that means is that all every single tower that's produced today, every manufacturer, whether it be a boat manufacturer or a OEM, pays correct craft or royalty for that tower. That utility patent has netted correct craft literally millions of dollars in royalties. What kind of, um, I'm sure that at, at some point, because I've heard of that kind of thing happening in other industries and, pe and people being like, oh, you're holding the rest of the industry back. You're, you know, that this is a huge pain or strain and drain on all these other companies. Um, what what well, kind we, of... We got into all that. We got into all that big time. First thing we did, you, you call about the flight control tower. Back in those days, we had a, you hear today of, of uh, 20 groups. This is fairly common for the boat manufacturers have 20 groups. Uh, we formed a president's roundtable, if you will, way before 20 groups ever came around. And uh, the credit for the name actually goes to Buzz, Buzz Watkins at Salem Ski, which was a Nautique dealer then, still is to this day. And we were talking about, what are we going to call this thing? And Buzz came up with his eyes. He says, why don't we call it something aviation-ish? And he says, why don't we call it a flight control tower? And it stuck. It stuck instantly. And so we named it the flight control tower. As soon as we then started trying to enforce this patent, yeah, we were criticized. All kinds of rocks were thrown at us. What was interesting was all the things you just said we were accused of. And then we started getting some phone calls from people in Silicon Valley of, of the engineers that, that come up with some of the systems that Apple uses today or Samsung uses today or any of the tech firms. Some of their engineers who have made, made their company what it is because they developed something and they, were, they would be damned if they were going to let somebody steal it. And uh, once we started getting support from people like that, that we were not wrong by protecting, uh, you know, you know what is called intellectual property, that we did this and this is ours. And by golly, we're going to protect it. And as we all know, Malibu soon followed that same basic line of thinking with the uh, development of their surf gate. And uh, they fought for that thing vigorously because this is something that their team put together. And they said, by golly, we're going to protect it. And I take my hat off to them. I do the same thing. Yep. And now many, many companies within oh, absolutely. and outside of the Toad Water Sports industry are pay, pay Malibu a uh, pay Malibu a royalty on that technology for that uh, the Surfgate that they did. One thing that um, always sticks out to me, and I don't know if it, it was just how I perceived the industry as a kid, but big companies like coffee, like Columbia Coffee, Coors, Bud Light, um, and really like Rolex is a company that, that stood out to me big time. Um, how are you, how are, I call it the old money. <laughs> yeah. How, how were you guys able to solidify that then? And now I, it, it's tough. I don't see the support of brands like this anymore. Danny, I'm, I'm going to tell you the absolute truth on how we did Rolex. Um, and I think it's unique. It's, but I don't think it's that unusual. Um, I started um, owning a Rolex was a personal goal of mine as a young man. I thought, gosh, someday if I, I would love to have a Rolex. So Rolex was already in my, my list, my inventory list of 
pretty neat stuff that if it showed success that if that if I could afford someday to own a Rolex. Um, so I started calling Rolex just as a potential sponsor out of the Masters. Well, Rolex USA is headquartered in New York, and but their sports agent at the time that handled the brand for sports was a guy by the name of um, John Franklin who lived in Colorado. So I would call John. He would rarely talk to me. I started writing letters. I wish I could find those letters to this day. For five years, John Franklin told me, thanks, but no thanks. Rolex is not interested in the Masters. So one day I'm... Um, we're at the Masters, and I, I don't remember what event it was, but the driver pulls up along. You're familiar with the pavilion. He pulled up where they start the jump event and the wakeboard events, right in the center back in those days. And the guy rested his hand on the gunnel of the boat, and he had this big Rolex on. I took a picture of it, of this guy driving the boat wearing his Rolex. And I sent the picture to New York, and I said... I would like to talk to somebody about getting involved with this event that obviously you're already in that uh, clientele or economic base because it's expensive sport. And uh, I'll be doggone, I got a call back or a, a letter, a phone call saying, come on up and talk to us. So as I'm preparing to go up there, Andy Mapple, the late, great Andy Mapple, and I were talking, and I said, I'm going to Rolex. And he says, he says, Larry, are you aware that there is a man who now runs Rolex from Switzerland that imported the very first ski nautique into Switzerland? I said, you've got to be kidding me. And his name was Jean-Noël Biol, Biol. And so I said, well, that's who I'm meeting with. So I fly to New York. I walk in, I say hello to Jean, I meet Jean Noel. We sit down, we start down. Of course, I had the picture. Again, no cell phones, it's a color print I brought with me and some information about the masters. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, if we sponsor the masters, does that mean I could go to dinner with and hang out with Andy Mapple? And I said, yep. He goes, done. And then he looks me straight in the eye and says, now justify the expense for me. It was, I learned early on, Danny, there are emotional buys and there are objective buys. Emotional buys are always more lucrative than objective buys. Give you another example. We were a sponsor of the Atlanta 500. NASCAR, Atlanta 500, huge race. I was standing next to the president of a company, and I don't remember the name of the company, and I said, and I told this, this president, looked at his marketing guy and said, if we can get Richard Petty, will you justify the expense? And the marketing guy told his president, yes, sir. He said, then do it. And the president wanted the bragging rights to be able to be, call Richard Petty his friend. It happens all the time. So Spalding, Spalding became a sponsor of the, of the Masters. 
the president of Spalding International. Hell of a good guy. He had a daughter. That like was Spalding, like tennis balls. Tennis balls, golf, top flight, that's Spalding. Huge, huge company. He's out of Canada. He's called Spalding International. He has a daughter that's a jumper in Canada. She's a good jumper. She's not a great jumper. So she can't get invest, invested, I'm sorry, cannot get invited to the Masters because she's not good enough. But I saw an opportunity. And I told this guy, I said, if we created a forerunner position, and I don't know if you know what forerunners are, but in, in big tournaments, especially at world tournaments, they'll send out a forerunner to test the system so that everybody's up to speed. That way the water is exactly the same for the next athlete going on the water. And I said, if I created a forerunner position for your daughter to jump, would Spalding's become a sponsor of the Masters? He said, yep. And we had Spalding for like three or four years. All the golf balls and tennis clubs you could knew what to do with. And uh, we had the best golf tournament that Spalding just completely took control of. It was just amazing stuff. Ford and Chevy kind of went down the same way. So with, with everything that you've done, there's like so many positive things that happen and, and within the industry. And um, But, you, you know, you... You, you go through it and obviously everything can't just be like unicorns and, and rainbows in life. And there have been a couple of times and there was two things that I kind of pinpointed out here that I wanted to kind of chat about that you were around for. And one of them goes back to SeaWorld in the mid-90s. There was like a pretty gnarly accident oh, that happened. Horrible. Um, and like a lot of times and probably back then it was probably something that was probably sort of needed to be kept on like the low, even though it was on national news and everything like that. What, what I recall is that during a, um, a sea world show, um, a boat basically lost control and went into the crowd. Correct. So, um, I, I want to hear, and I don't remember if it was actually like a ski boat or if no. it was like a jet boat. It was a jet show, boat. But... It was a jet drive boat. They were, it was in Ohio. And they were doing a show, and they had a, a, a driverless boat, supposedly. The boat was being driven by a guy underneath the deck, and the guy, you know, in the helm, you know, he's spinning the wheel, but he really didn't have control of the boat. It was all part of a gag that was scripted into their show. Which they've done Which they've done, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of times. And uh, in this unfortunate day, uh, the boat is, is pointed at the stadium, at the crowd, it's coming straight at them, and the uh, the steering cables break. Uh, and remember, the guy is down below, so I don't know that his vision was that you know good to be you know obviously not as good as he's standing if he was sitting in the helm. And I believe there was a throttle issue as well. Anyway, this was a jet boat, and so this boat just kept coming, and it it went right up the beach. It it was going so fast. They went right up the beach into the crowd. And I got the phone call from SeaWorld Security. Um, they had my home phone, and I was, of course, here in Orlando. And they said, Larry, there's been an accident. I said, oh, my God, and tell me, you know, and I hate to say this, but first words out of my mouth was, was it a nautique? And the guard said, no. And again, shame on us, but I thought, well, okay. Now let's go to you know step B. What was it, and was anybody hurt? And unfortunately, there were people hurt. Nobody died, but there were severe injuries. Um, 
and that changed a lot of things in a lot of the shows is that patterns were then redrawn so that no gag or stunt could be facing the crowd and uh, security rails went immediately up in front of all the grandstands. Now in San Diego, this wasn't an issue because the way the design of the stadium was such, you know, stadium was you know 15 feet above the water to begin with. Uh, but in San Antonio and in Orlando and Ohio, they put in guardrails. Quick break, everybody, right now. So Big Lair, Larry Medock, has had quite the career, and he's been part of so many traditions within water sports. And another tradition for over 50 years is O'Brien Water Sports. For five-plus decades, O'Brien has been creating products specifically for the ultimate and family fun on the water. Knowing your time at the lake is cherished, O'Brien's mission is to bring you the absolute most pleasure possible to make memories that last a lifetime. Quality, performance, and value. Those are the pillars the O'Brien name has been famous for now for more than five decades. Today, O'Brien offers wakeboards for riders at all levels, both boat and park. Full hybrids, perfect for any pull. Check out O'Brien.com, see the entire new lineup of product, dealers near you, team, blog, and so much more. Quality, performance, and value. Again, that's O'Brien, and you can find him online at O'Brien.com. O-B-R-I-E-N.com. Now let's get back to Larry Medock right here on the Golden Mike Podcast. No, we know that like nowadays that ski shows just aren't what they once were. I mean, no. at, at these parks and you know back in the old days. Because I come from the show ski world, right. and I know that a lot of skiers would aspire to go to a pro ski show, and there used to be dozens of them around the U.S. to go to, and right. now there's maybe three. Yeah. Well, obviously, um, uh, Cypress Gardens was the big daddy of them all and the most famous. And when I came to work at Correct Craft, we had practice boats at the gardens, but we didn't enjoy the show circle. That was done by Glastron and Johnson. And uh, I'll never forget the day that I got the phone call from SeaWorld saying they were going to make a, make a change. I'm sorry, from Cypress Gardens, they were going to make a change. And I, and I naively thought, oh, finally they're seeing the light and they're gonna, this is the call. They're going to go to um, Nautique. And the guy says, no, he says, uh, I'm giving you 48 hours to come and pick up all your boats. And we're going to Mastercraft with the Johnson outboard. Obviously, I was devastated. I was heartbroken that, you know, how could this possibly be? And um, I remember telling the guy, I said, I don't know that I've got the guts to go tell Mr. Maloon that after all these years and all that we've done for the gardens that you're going to go to Mastercraft. Would you like to give him a call yourself and give him this news? And the guy said, yeah, I'll call him. So I got, so sure enough, he did. And the next thing I know, W.O. Maloon's standing in my office and he says, you go get SeaWorld. And he says, whatever it takes, go get SeaWorld. And I said, yes, sir. And I went out and it took me about two years and we finally landed SeaWorld. But uh, that was a, a great run, a great group of people, four parks. Uh, we got to uh, advise and consult as they built San Antonio. Uh, back in those days, Harcourt Brace Yovanovich was the owner of SeaWorld. So uh, Bill Yovanovich was quite a character, and I would go to meetings out there in San Antonio. 
Um, SeaWorld was, you know, everybody, you, again, you look at the exposure, you know, you know, what is that worth? We did start to see in our warranty cards that they bought a Nautique because they saw it at SeaWorld. That was very, that was probably one of the few times that you did see, you know, an ROI that you could really track on it because it was a huge investment. What people don't realize what was going on behind the scenes is that SeaWorld became one of our best testing grounds. Uh, San, San Diego was fantastic because it was, it was saltwater. So that's where we be, were able to develop a saltwater package for those boats that were being known to be going into a saltwater environment. So if we could get the boats to survive SeaWorld in saltwater, we knew we had something. Um, in, in, uh, because of how close they were to us here in Orlando, uh, new, different gel coats, different vinyls, different fuels, different engines, different propellers, the loads on tow pylons. These are all things that were going on that nobody knew about. Engineering was in, it was in much direct contact with SeaWorld as what marketing were, was. What was your, um, what was it like working like the difference between show skiers and traditional three event skiers? Totally different. I mean, I don't, and I'm, I know you do both Danny, but, but in my, at my time, um, the show skiing world was, totally different than the three event world the show skiing first of all is a family um they are absolutely committed they have each other's back like there's no tomorrow because if they don't someone's going to get hurt and uh so they they know what they're doing out there um i was uh, to this day i stay in touch with some of those those show skiers to this day um Back in the day, uh, when when Imtech, which was the big boat show of the marine industry, when it folded in Chicago, and they decided to uh, to bring the show to, to Orlando, we went to SeaWorld and asked them if they would produce us a, a water ski show just to support industry, and they did. Uh, Art Freeman was the vice president of entertainment at the time, and he did more for the towed water sports industry. And again, it wasn't because he was just a nice guy, because he was. But he got access to all the skis that he wanted because he got, again, Danny goes back to relationships. I introduced Art to the heads of these water ski companies, and not all of them clicked, but some of them did. And all of a sudden, you know, this show was all O'Brien, and this show was all Conley, and, and it was a win-win. The shows that we produced back in those days were just fantastic. And then we had our dealer meetings, and Art would produce dealer meetings. We did one to to the twilight zone and and we'd had themes for our dealer meeting these special shows for our dealers that were just spectacular just a kind of a different time oh just a different time but the the talent of the athlete again just i would say the difference is family it's a it's a family environment and uh, on that professional level and i think the amateurs is just the same thing it's it's all volunteer family but it's the same again same culture i think whether you're pro or not. One other event that I want to talk about, it's probably considered to be like the darkest spot in our, well, I'd probably say probably top three darkest spots in the world of towed water sports. You'd retired from running the masters at this time. And I think you'd been retired from, from correct craft and nautique for some time. And from what I understand you um, were asked to come back and help advise on a few of events and one of these events was in 2005, and it was up in my neck of the woods, up in Wisconsin. It was the Malibu Open, 
and um, it was hosted at a property from uh, this dentist, a doctor from, oh, from Wisconsin. Gosh. Oh, and, and, yes, yes. Uh, this guy had a huge buzz coming up. He was this like 40-something-year-old guy that was not only scratching the surface of what Andy Mapple was doing, but he was go- like basically putting himself at a head-to-head spot with him. He had a new style of water skiing and basically just came out of nowhere. His name was... Uh, Dr. Dr. Jim Michaels. I met the guy one time in in Orlando. I never actually got to see him ski in per person. He's kind of a a weird dude. He was he acted slightly humble when I met him, but I guess I we were all very uh, very very much tricked by by Dr. Michaels. Can you talk a little bit about the event and and what I'm talking about? Here? Oh my gosh, Danny, you're uh, you're you're digging deep now, buddy. Um, I was asked to uh, help Andy Mapple and a guy, a gentleman by the name of Dave Hunter, produce three professional events in the summer of 2005. Uh, one was uh, the the um, the Mastercraft uh, Open, which was in Flushing Meadows, uh, which is where the U.S. Open is held in tennis in New York, in New York, New York City, in Queens, and uh, um, and then the next stop on this little tour was the Malibu Open, which was going to be in Madison, Wisconsin. Then the third stop was going to be the Disney Open, which was going to be at Walt Disney World, at it, it, um, Walt Disney Village. And uh, so Andy and I were the, were the worker bees of that deal. And uh, uh, we pulled off the New York gig without issue, without incident, didn't kill anybody. Uh, fairly good event. Uh, some of the nastiest water you could ever imagine skiing in and three event. And we then went to Madison and this was heaven because this was on a private site. Uh, Dr. Michaels, as you said, had this beautiful home with this beautiful, uh, home, you know, custom slum lake that it was in his backyard. And the elevation on this lake was such that his, the house was perched up over the, you know, fairly high over the lake. It was just spectacular. Uh, we had worked with some of the, a lot of the locals to do a lot of the work and the volunteer stuff coming in. And um, we knew that, you know, it had to have a, um, to be an open, we, it was going to be three of them, we had to bring in a jump ramp. So Rob Beeman, bless his heart, you know, provided the, the launch ramp. Well, as we're building the site out, we put in a jump course for the boat to run as any jump course needs to be built. But because we were lazy and we'd like to think also efficient, we decided to use one side of the slalom course to be one side of the jump jump course. So imagine if you will, the, the turning buoys for the slalom course are now the boat guides for the jump course. So all we then had to do is put in another set of buoys for the, you know, the other side of the, of the, um, stay in between them. And the boat runs right down the middle in between these two buoy are these, this, this buoy line, which gives the boat driver his references to get the jumper onto the jump ramp. Dr. Michaels didn't anticipate that was going to happen. He never thought that far out as to the fact that there was now going to be a reference point that had never existed before on his lake, and that's this second set of buoys that we put in. Unbeknownst to us, Mr. Michaels was and had built 
a very, very sophisticated underwater pulley cable system that would cause the turning buoys in the slalom course to move in a good three feet uh, on command. Who else in the world has some sort of slalom course like this, and why would you even build something like this? Uh, good question. I'm not aware of anybody that would have one that was push button activated where you would move this thing in and out. I do. And I am aware that there are folks that when they're training a, uh, somebody to run the big, what we would call the big course, a six buoy course that typically you start on four buoys, just to start to get into the habit of turning when you have to turn, not turning when you want to turn. And you take a buoy, and typically they would be a green buoy instead of a red buoy, which are the turning buoys of a natural course. Put a cinder block on it, drop it half the distance between the boat guides and the turning buoys. Kind of like an inner course. Yeah, an inner, that's a great, great word, an intercourse for the, for the big course. And so a novice could see what, you know, get a feel for that, what that motion's all about. That pendulum swing back and forth, but much narrower. Well, unbeknownst to us, Dr. Michaels had done this on the big course, but set up simply, solely so that he could cheat. And um, I happened to be, I'll never forget this, I happened to be setting up a Malibu um, inflatable sphere as part of their advertising. And I was working on that, and I got a bark over the radio from Chief Judge that the tournament had been shut down and I was to report to the judge's tower immediately. And while you're at it, Larry, go find Andy. And um, so I just said, yes, sir. And I got in my golf cart, found Andy, went to the judge's tower. Ed Brazil was at the controls. And he said to me and Andy, he said, I want you to watch this. And we're watching all of a sudden these buoys start to move. And they're moving towards the center of the slalom course, therefore making it a narrower course. And this was just prior to Dr. Michael's slalom run. And we were all in disbelief. We thought, this is insane. Why? Are you sure? And we just played it over and over and over again to see that, yeah, this is really happening. We got on our radios. We had a dive team on site. We immediately sent our dive team into the water. And sure enough, they came up, you know, found the cable system, found that it had just been cut, uh, fresh cut on the cables. Because uh, uh, Dr. Michaels tried to explain later that he had had this system, it was very old. They didn't use it anymore, which we now had video evidence that it had just been activated. And now we had you know, eyeball uh, evidence that now, the course was real and it had just been cut. When this all goes down, I'm working, actually, I'd come home that summer from Florida to, to work up at a shop and ski with the club up in uh, Twin Lakes, and I'd planned to go the next day to the Malibu Open, and I get word that this has gone down. So a bunch of my buddies and I were like, we got to go see this scene. <laughs> this is this is It was crazy. surreal. It was absolutely crazy. But like, you... Andy Mapple. I mean, I, I I could just imagine the smoke coming out of your ears. Like, how angry are you guys? And then also, how do you deal with this doctor? Because you're I, on his property. Exactly. I, I I don't think anger took over until we were off site. Um, uh, 
to, to think that, you know, anger had nothing to do with it at first. Like you said, we were, we had irrefutable evidence that this guy was cheating. And yet we have a television contract to produce a show. We have a production company on site to produce a show. We have contracts with networks to deliver this show, to be aired. And as you said, Dan, we're on private property. And all this guy would have had to do is just throw us out and say, you guys have accused me falsely. I, um, um, you know, I want you off my property. That's what was consuming all of us on, on our production side. Um, Andy was, was Andy Mapple and he was actually in the tournament even. And, uh, and obviously an idol to Dr. Michael. And I turned to Andy and I said, Andy, guess what? You get to do this one. I said, if there's anybody that's going to pull this off, it's got to be somebody like you that he idolizes so much that hopefully you can get to his heart and say, Jim, I don't know what motivates you to do this, but obviously this is not right. And, you know, we this isn't going to happen. And, uh, you know, you're going to be, you know, terminated or, or what's the word I'm looking for? Disqualified. Disqualified, thank you, from the tournament. Well, the word had gotten to his wife and to his daughters. The daughters are screaming that my daddy's not a... So now we got teenage girls crying and wailing. The, the, we got a wife that's upset that, you know, we're accusing him of... And they're all on site. They're all on site. They're all on site that my daddy is not a cheat. He's not a crook, you know. You can't do this. This isn't right. And oh my goodness, it was just horrible. And uh, Andy took him away and they went for a walk. Is my recollection. I don't think he got in a car. They went for a walk and he came back and Dr. Michaels got in his car and left the, left the property. And with a, with a statement to us, please continue. Uh, I will come back after the tournament's over. And so if I remember correctly, we got all the judges together. We had a quick huddle. Um, you know, the, the system had been deactivated, had been cut by his own, his own lackeys that were helping him do this stuff. And uh, um, we picked up and started running again, obviously with a tremendous pall over the event that, you know, my gosh, look at what this guy did. Do you know, do you know at this point that no other skiers runs were messed with because of this? That Danny, I don't remember. Was that even a thought? I, uh, obviously I think they probably calculated, they threw all of his scores out, threw him out and then recalculated their, you know, their seating and or their performances. And if it, if it caused somebody to get bumped, I'm sure that athlete was told that he had another shot at it. And when it was all said run. and done, and this stuff came out for television, was this even part of the story? Never, no, 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 it, no, it was never ever spoken of. You know, from our standpoint, it wasn't part of the show. It wasn't something discussed during the show. We didn't think that was appropriate. Um, this was a tragic man somehow motivated to cheat in a tournament i have been told i don't have it on you know i don't know this absolutely factual but i was told that that uh, he got visits from several agencies when this was over uh from the state from the feds that if you're going to cheat in a 
in a slalom tournament, what else are you cheating on? Sure. And I was told that his marriage came apart. I, and a, but again, I, I don't know of all the details on any of that stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, stuff stuff in life like that yeah, does happen. But I got to ask you, like, out of, all of the, out of all of the years, out of all of the events, I mean, would you consider that like the darkest moment in Toad Water Sports? That or? was, yeah, that was that was pretty pretty unique. That was pretty dark. It, it was just, it was, it was again. You 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 asked your this that question. Why? Why would somebody be motivated to do that? That I mean, my God, is winning that important? Um, but to this guy, it was, and uh, it's really sad. But yeah, it was. Uh, that was probably. Uh, we had some crazy times. I, I don't know if I shared with you the time, but I think that the that one, yeah, it affected me. But it, I wasn't the final say on it. I was a, I was one of the producers of the event. But you know, the the event was being run by very capable judges within AWSA. I think I, I don't know if I shared with you the the other really dark moment was the day um, that the. Um, that all the slalom skiers decided to boycott the master. Did I ever tell you this story? No. Oh, Danny. Um, we had, uh, Bruce Neville came up to me one day, months before the masters. And he said, um, Larry, if I could go get more money for the jump event, would you put it on the jump event? And I said, sure. And I said, I'm going to take a handling fee and I said, uh, I'll be a percentage. And I said, but yeah, the majority of it will be yours. Well, son of a gun, he did. He went out and got 25 additional thousand dollars for the men's jump event. Correct Craft took, I think, uh, 1250 bucks of it for, you know, management of that money and put it into the uh, men's jump event. Oh my God, the rest of the athletes, the men's slum, men's ladies slum, they just got their panties in a knot like there's no tomorrow. They just didn't think this was right. And I told them, I said, guys, go get additional. We're already putting in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you want to get more money for your event, go for it, just like Bruce did. Uh, you know, I don't have an issue with that. So, of course, they didn't. All they wanted to do was whine. And so, Enski. So, on Friday, back in those days, we didn't have uh, practices. And so, on Friday, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Friday morning, I'm in my hotel room. It's seven o'clock in the morning. I get a knock at the door, and I am handed a piece of paper. And it starts off with, We the undersigned. And everybody that had been invited to the Masters have resigned, have said, we're not skiing in the Masters. I mean, even like Andy? Not, let me finish. Everybody except Andy and Jeff Rogers signed this petition to say they refused to ski in the Masters unless they got $25,000. This is just the men's, not the women's, just the men's slalom event. It's 7 o'clock Friday morning. The Masters starts Saturday morning. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, what in the world am I going to do now? And so first thing I did is I picked up the phone, called Andy. I said, Andy, are you aware of this petition? He said, yes. And I said, I noticed you didn't sign it. He said, no, sir. I said, are you coming to the Masters? He said, yes, sir. 
I hung up the phone, did the same thing to Jeff Rogers. And Jeff had just tied Andy's slalom record, world record. I said, Jeff, same questions. Jeff said, Mr. Maddock, I'll be there. I said, thank you very much. Third phone call I made was to the director of the show. And his name was R.T. Williams. And I said, R.T., I said, I've got a problem. I said, I don't have a men's slalom event. I said, we've got ourselves a boycott on our hands. And I said, I'm not going to give in to him. So my question to you is, can we make an event with two athletes? And what I want to do is I want to do a head-to-head break the world record challenge between the two world record holders. Is that a show for you? And he said, you're damn right it is. So then I called my boss and I said, Walt, here's what's happened. And Walt said, what do you recommend? I said, again, we didn't have emails back then. I said, I want to send a telegram to each of the invited athletes telling them they have been uninvited to the Masters. And he said, do it. So I got a hold of Callaway. We sent telegrams from Callaway uninviting the entire Masters field except Andy and Jeff because it's an invitation-only event. I felt I had the right to uninvite them if I chose to. So we uninvited them. Dano, you should have... What happened next was their, the, the slalom skiers' sponsors, Herb O'Brien was still alive in these days. Herb calls me up and says, he hears what this one of his athletes has done. He says, how much money and how big a check do I have to write so that you let my skier ski at the Masters? And I said, Herb, I'm sorry. You, they're going to be held accountable. They're, they, you, you pay, you know, there's consequences for actions. They've been uninvited and they're not coming back. He said, Larry, I want you to know that athlete will be there. He'll be working my booth. And if he breathes one word negative about the Masters, you are to call me because then I'll fire him. And that athlete came to the Masters, sat in his booth, didn't get to ski on the water. Were any of the skiers like uh, overall skiers at this, like any of those slalom skiers overall skiers or no, anything like that? No. So These were all the slalom specialists that we invited. Needless to say, something like that has never happened again. Never happened again. That was probably the darkest day for me. I have not shared that story with very many people, Danny. Wow. I, I have, in fact, when I was inducted to the hall, into the Hall of Fame, Somebody asked me to tell that story, and I said, no, I won't do it. I, 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 but, I, I mean, like, as, as skiers, I mean, how did that affect, like, the event and also the rest of those skiers? Well, that's one we did talk about. You know, we said we didn't talk about the Dr. Michaels thing. I did talk on that one on the mic. I, you and I have talked about, you know, when I was doing some announcing, and I got on the mic, and I said, told the audience what was going on, told them the position that we took, and we had nothing but total support from the judges. You know, this is a, you know, this is, this is somebody trying to operate from a position. They think they're operating from a position of strength when actually they, they're very weak and it, it backfired on them and they got nothing. And in some cases, their sponsors made them show up anyway and made, and made them pay all the expenses. They didn't even pay their expenses. Herb told me that his athletes were paying, they, he wasn't paying the airlines, they weren't paying their lodging, but they'd be there, they'd be fired. Wow. So that was a, that was a test, you know, to see what, what we were made out of. Unbelievable. In principle. 
Hey, Golden Mike Podcast listeners, get your boat looking brand new this summer with some custom Sea Deck non-skid traction. On your boat, in your boat, on the dock, or anywhere normally prone to slippery surfaces, even paddle boards and wake surfers. Sea Deck has a growing network of certified fabricators and installers covering the USA, Canada, Europe, and the South Pacific. And now it's easier than ever to have a Sea Deck professional take your project from start to finish. Go to SeaDeck.com, hit the custom button. Button on the website and look for the interactive map to locate a CDEX certified fabricator or installer in your area to schedule an appointment today. Since 1965, Conley's been revolutionizing the industry with explosive ski technology and leaving a wake of legacy along the way. The energy that drives the Conley brand today is the same passion that drove the company 50 plus years ago, multiplied by infinity. With one major goal in mind, making summer fun, Conley continues to push the envelope in quality and performance. The entire line of Conley products, skis, wakeboards, surfers, floats, SUPs, apparel, and more. Well, they're available to check out and purchase at ConleySkis.com. Again, that's ConleySkis.com. Presented by Sea Deck Marine Products, it's the Golden Mike Podcast with the noise of the North, Dano the Mano. Hey, that was pretty cool, everyone. Big Lair, Larry Medoc. What a closing story there. I never heard about that skier boycott, but man, that must have been an intense and scary moment for a lot of the people involved. My guess is the skiers probably learned a valuable lesson and probably took a different approach to sponsorship money after that. Anyways, I recorded a bit more with Larry, so what I've done is I've decided to do a second episode, but for that, you must wait until after episode 100. So this is episode 99. You must wait until after episode 100. So we're going to release episode 99. That's today. We're going to release episode 100. And then I will be back with episode 101 and Larry Medoc part two. Thanks, Larry, for hosting me over at your house over there on Lake Pine Lock in Orlando, Florida. That uh, was a great day and really enjoyed the conversation. All right, folks, I do have some big events coming up. The schedule is stacked. Quick overview. This weekend, June 22nd through the 24th, I'm in Missouri on Lake of the Ozarks for the second stop of the Malibu Boats Rider Experience Series. The following week, Friday, June 29th in Chicagoland with Footin.com. The event is Footin' the Fox. It's a barefoot endurance relay race. The next day, Saturday and Sunday, June 30th, July 1st, I'll be at the Malibu Boats Factory in Tennessee for the 2018 Malibu Smoky Mountain Pro, second annual. Boise, Idaho, July 6th, 7th, and 8th. Detroit, Michigan, July 13th, 14th, and 15th for stops three and four of the Malibu Boats Rider Experience in the WWA Wakeboard Regional Championships. The month of July closes out in Seattle for the WWA Wakeboard Nationals, and we kick off August in Chicagoland for the 2018 WWA Wake Park National Championships at the Quarry. 
Book me for your next event. Contact me through email goldenmike at noiseofthenorth.com. My social media is at the Dano Timano and at the golden underscore Mike on Twitter. Instagram, I'm at Dano Timano and at the Golden Mike Podcast on Facebook. Spread the word about the Golden Mike Podcast. Let everyone know all 99 episodes are available on iTunes, most Android podcast listening apps, SoundCloud, and noiseofthenorth.com. Rate the show. Write a review. Five stars, people. Keep this podcast going strong. Another 99-plus episodes. Thanks again to Larry Medock, and now a few shout-outs to the sponsors and folks behind the scenes. Thank you to SeaDeck Marine Products, Boulder Boats, WSIA, Roswell Marine, Woodrow Sustainable Optics, Performance Ski and Surf, Footin.com, GoPuck, Hyperlite, Conley, Ledwake, Ronix, O'Brien, and Slingshot. Jenna Carruth on the web and Rich Walsh on the audio. That's going to do it for today's show, and I appreciate you all for tuning in and listening 99 times, baby. I'm the Noise of the North, Dan Lamano, and you can hear me next time once again on the Golden Mike Podcast.